Hey everyone, we are back. Welcome back to season two of In Theory. We're so excited to be here and to be on the internet with you in your earbuds. This season, we're taking on lots of new and juicy topics, including the ethics of food, vacation and leisure, and aging, among many others. Yeah, so much more. So excited about it. (laughs) So let's go. So Maria, I'm going to tell you a little story about my big Muslim pilgrimage. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So in 2011, I went on the kind of once-in-a-lifetime Muslim pilgrimage called the Hajj. Mm -hmm. And all Muslims are required to do this. It's part of our rules. And you basically go to holy sites in Saudi Arabia and you perform all of these rituals. You pray alongside four million other people. Wow. It's like supremely epic it's really really cool everyone wears the same kinds of clothes so the idea is that like everyone is equal before god sounds amazing it was it was really cool but here's the really juicy part so menstruating women in islam can't pray or fast or partake in a lot of these kinds of rituals you save up all this money it's like super hard to get a visa you like make all of these arrangements if you're a single woman which i was at the time like you have to get like a male person to sponsor you. So like you have to like go with a male relative. Like you have to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you get there and you have your period, you can't really do any of the rituals. Oh, oh hell no. So crazy. <laughs> it's so it's like really disastrously sad for a lot of folks. So what did you do? I did what any woman who wanted to take control of her destiny did. I got on the pill. <laughs> I got on the pill. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Two months before, like, I had to do all these, like, online courses to, like, get ready. And the person I was taking the courses from was, like, young women, please start taking the pill to control your menses or, like, whatever, like, very formal way. Right. (laughs) Like, a religious scholar um, (laughs) starts talking. So I was, like, I'd never been on the pill before. I, like, took it. I was, like, yes, this is amazing. But there are lots of little subcultural strains of, like, religious scholars who don't want to encourage young women to get on the pill because who knows what kind of sluts they'll turn into whoa whoa so so the concern is if you go on the pill then it's gonna open the gates of danger and hell yes totally i mean just all sorts of sinful activity it's the same reason why all of america doesn't take the Ugh, hpv shot even though we know i'm so mad yeah about that. so that's that's a story well, that is crazy well thank you for sharing that amazing story and listeners as you can probably tell today we are talking about periods the bloody truth about periods <laughs> <laughs> i've been saving that like, for months <laughs> so this is Naran Khan and I'm Maria Sachiko Sasiri and we welcome you to In Theory the podcast about theory and the world around us and we're now in season two hooray and we're happy to be yes. back with you so Naran your story about Hajj sounds like a really epic version of what I think a lot of women have to deal with that there are across cultures all around the world 
a lot of taboos around periods. Even just things like being embarrassed of buying tampons in the grocery store, all the way up to not being allowed into certain spaces or allowed to do certain things um, while you're on your period. This is super common around the world. Totally true. In many cultures around the world, menstruating women are considered to be ritually impure, hmm. which basically means they can't participate in certain cultural or religious or other types of acts in public life or even in private life. Mm-hmm. And anthropologists have been fascinated by menstruation for a long time, so they've been able to identify this happening across cultures. The anthropologist Buckley and Gottlieb wrote this fantastic book called, drumroll please, Blood Magic. Such a good title. Yeah, so good. And part of Blood Magic identifies the pervasiveness of the menstrual taboo, but it also Mm. brings to light the fact that the taboos related to speaking about periods or actually openly acknowledging it in culture really vary. In some cultures, people just don't talk about it or acknowledge it. Um, In other cultures, people have no problem doing that. For a long time, the research across cultures about periods and menstruation was very male-centered from a male point of view. And it's getting increasingly women-centered, and there's lots of different pieces of that we're going to hopefully unpack today. Mm -hmm. But it's also become a feminist issue because a lot of times the subjugation of women and the exclusion of women from participating in certain types of activities because of their periods is a way of lowering their status or not permitting them to participate in essential parts of the community. Totally. That's so right on because anything that basically writes women off as dirty, needing to be excluded because of something that is wholly natural and happens to them for most women pretty regularly necessarily basically identifies women as a kind of subversion of human. Totally. And Maria, you point out really clearly a lot of the language around the exclusion of women in these spaces is negative. It talks about the impurity and uncleanliness of women. It's not like these women are imbued with this like magical experience and they don't have to participate. It's very much like they are dirty. They're not welcome. Which is crazy because it's like, Bro, I'm doing this so that I can be reproductively viable so that we can have some babies that you can walk around and be like, ah, fathered that baby. So just step right off and be grateful. Exactly. Your genetic material has a future because of me and my womb. (laughs) Exactly. Honor this period. (laughs) But this is common in, like I said, in Islamic practices, in Hinduism, certainly in India, which we're going to get to because it's a locus of a lot of really great, robust protest movements. But In Buddhist temples also, for example. So if you're visiting temples, there's a real clear message to visitors. If you're a menstruating woman, you're not allowed. It must be so uncomfortable to see those kinds of restrictions placed on you and a really clear exclusion that just makes you not only feel awkward for being a woman, but also in the particular period of time to be like, oh my God, my body is in this ritual uncleanliness period. If you were like going as a visitor to another country, to a temple, for example, in like Thailand, would you respect that request made of you? Or, I mean, no one can actually tell if, you're, if you have your period or not. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know what? I probably would. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, I totally disagree. But it's, you know, if I'm interested enough in your culture to come and look at your temple... I can be respectful enough to not break its rules. Sure. I mean, there's so many points that we talk about in our work where these like abstract ideas apply to your own personal experiences or narrative. And so much of that relates to me in this like Islamic context. So we're not allowed to pray or fast when you have your period. Mm -hmm. And I 
love <laughs> my week off. <laughs> like, I love it. If we have to fast for like a month in the heat of the summer, I love being like, I'm out, y'all. I get my week. It feels good. And I can have whatever I want to have. That's such an interesting point to bring up because I don't have that experience in my own practice. But I, um, I did used to do a lot of uh, Ashtanga yoga. And I remember, like, I did it, like, daily. It was hardcore. I used to be really yeah. strong. Now I'm a slovenly blob. <laughs> it's amazing. But during that time, right, it was that if you were on your period, you were not expected to do any of the inversions. And, in fact, were encouraged to either not practice or to do a much modified practice. And I would also love it. I was like, oh, look, I'd love to be in my firm, strong yogi mode. But, actually, I just really can't because I'm on my period. <laughs> I feel like feminist guilty about it because I know, especially when I read about like all of the great organizing that's happening in India where there's this like trending hashtag happy to bleed. Women are really protesting their subjugated status with respect to having their periods. But like, I just like the time off. I don't consider myself to be gross or unclean. I just like love that I'm exempted from something. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like I do feel a little bit feminist tension about it. And I guess I believe in the religious beliefs. I don't feel like I'm any Mm -hmm. less of a praying person at that time. And like I can be spiritual. Like I just get the credit for free. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's um, this one French theorist, Michel Duchateau. He has this book called The Practice of Everyday Life. And he talks about um, tactics versus strategies. And basically he talks about like this relationship between those who are in power and those who are not. And the people who are not so much in power, the way they can like exert any control over their lives is through something called tactics, where basically they do all these little things um, in their life within a larger structure that's been imposed on them by the powerful Yeah. Um, to make their lives a little bit more comfortable, a little more pleasurable, and a little bit more owned, and to have some agency over their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the strategies are these big top-down strategies that the powerful impose on the less powerful. But his argument is basically that even when you're in a disempowered position, such as, for example, women under patriarchal systems that think they're dirty and unclean when they're on their period, you can still have little tactics or ways of enjoying what's been given to you. And in this case, being like, all right, you're going to say I'm unclean. I'm going to be like, sweet, I'm going to eat this week. That totally resonates, and I think it applies to so many circumstances. It reminds me of, like, in law school, I took employment discrimination, and we were talking about workers in really exploitative conditions and the, Mm -hmm. like, micro ways in which they resist. Mm -hmm. And it's everything from ways to be subversive or not conform. And it really is their opportunity to have agency in a situation that's just, like, not built for them to have any rights Yep. Well, until we can tear the whole system down, here's to tactics. So I guess some takeaways here. Menstruation taboos are found across the world, and they're probably a form of misogyny, but they also provide opportunities for agency within a patriarchal system. Woot! So Maria, if you had the choice not to have your period, if you could just not have it, would you? You know, I was thinking about this and although at first I was like, I don't know, where would I fall? 
He's like, hit me like a bolt of lightning. What am I talking about? Of course I wouldn't have it. Why the <laughs> hell would I want that thing? <laughs> I mean, it's fine, I guess. But I mean, painful, inconvenient in the world in which we live. I mean, honestly, if I could outsource pretty much all of my reproductive functions, I would do it right now. Wow. Okay. As someone who's never had a child, I haven't, you know, experienced the miracle of life yet. But yeah, when I hear about most of it, uh, it sounds to me like Aliens the movie, and I don't really want much of it associated with me at this point in my life. (laughs) What about you? Well, aside from enjoying the benefits of opting out of certain, like, religious obligations, which I'm totally, like, riding that free ticket. Oh, yeah. I think it'd feel weird not to. Like, there is something natural feeling about it, (laughs) and it's, like, total torture and terrible sometimes, but... I think if I never had one, I'd feel like I'd be messing with my body's natural rhythms in some way. Yeah. I think just like at a very high level, it'd feel weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. I think maybe I'm more comfortable with my cyborg identity (laughs) to the point where I want my womb to be a tank that I can go and visit for nine months. (laughs) Excellent. Outsource everything. How's it going in there? Good. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to go back to like doing the things I want to do, eating sushi, drinking champagne. Catch you next week, baby. (laughs) I'm a monster. What can I say? (laughs) So this kind of introduces, I guess, the very idea, like we're 50 years past the pill. The creation of the pill is a product of the 20th century. Yeah, it's so huge. Control over our fertility and the ability to limit or eliminate fertility altogether. It's just, it's kind of something we take for granted. Yeah, it's so huge. And one of the things that's really interesting about it is that we don't, need to have periods on the pill, but we totally do. Yeah, totally true. Like monthly. And in fact, there are options to have it fewer than monthly, like once a season, four times a year. Mm -hmm. But some of the research on this indicates that there was a really observant Catholic who was involved in the creation of the pill. And part of the narrative around the pill is that it's very natural. And so it gives the feeling that the period is a very natural phenomenon that's not being messed with because of this like manipulation. And so it very much was a way to kind of mainstream and make acceptable these controls over fertility. That's so interesting. And what you said earlier about wanting to have a period, that's basically that same feeling, right, of it being natural. Totally. And um, we're going to link to a really great article on sociological images on this. Uh, They always do great work and we love them. And that kind of speaks to this history. It also speaks to the fact that when the pills that reduce the number of your periods to like four times a year are advertised to women, they're often kind of marketed in a way that acknowledges that it's like an inconvenience for busy women. Yeah, the fact that we have so many periods is pretty recent because women throughout time spent a lot more of their lives pregnant and breastfeeding. Yeah, which is really interesting. So this kind of, this idea of it being natural to have monthly periods, that only makes sense in the context of a world in which it's natural to be fertile, but not pregnant or breastfeeding for long parts of your fertile life. Totally. And I mean, we live longer than ever too. Um, So women were dying at 30 and maybe pregnant the entire time. Yeah, so all of it basically is about this idea of family planning, the idea that it's normal for women to be women who have a part in the world to play that's not just reproductive. That makes it possible to have women who are having periods like every month as opposed to just being going from pregnancy to pregnancy. Totally. Yet another example of things that we take for granted today that like weren't always this way forever and they just seem so natural to us. Hmm. 
Yeah, I find this all so interesting. I mean, so many of the narratives around like periods and why we have them and how many we're supposed to have and what's natural and what's not. I mean, so much of this is still inconclusive scientifically. Sure. One of the things I loved was reading alternative theories about what menstruation is for. Because the way that the narrative often gets presented now is that the lining of the uterus sheds once a month um, when a woman fails to get pregnant. And so it frames it in this way where your period is a sign of your failure as a woman to live out your role as childbearer. Yeah. But then there are like other ways of thinking about where it comes from, which evolutionarily may also work. So there was this one woman in the 90s who's like my hero. <laughs> she suggested <laughs> that instead of looking at the period as an example of women's failure to be pregnant, it's a potentially a way of flushing out pathogens that come from men from having sex with partners. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, we don't know that this is uh, borne out by the research, but I just love her chutzpah. She's like, uh-uh. It's not that we fail to get pregnant. It's that you guys are bringing dirty, weird stuff into our womb. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but then more recently, there's also some stuff about the period is potentially coming out of a battle for resources between women and embryos. So yeah. like women and, and their fetuses not kind of moving as one beautiful unit, but rather that embryos are trying to like suck out all the resources from women and so women develop evolutionary responses to prevent themselves from investing too many resources in an embryo that might turn out to not be viable or to be deformed in some way and basically all of this goes back to the fact that unlike most animals people have sex all the time so we we don't just wait till we're in heat or when women are most fertile um, and since we're doing yeah. it whenever, what that means yeah. is that the eggs that may be getting implanted in the womb sometimes can be kind of old or not really the freshest or the best um, when they get implanted. And so then that they can have these defects. And so in order to prevent too many of these problematic embryos from implanting, the body once a month flushes out everything and like resets. Gosh, the body is like one big mystery. I think it is amazing that we don't know for sure that there are all these different theories about how or why we might be menstruating and when we menstruate. And part of it might also relate to the fact that even in our, let's say, contemporary Western culture, people don't talk about it as much. Mm -hmm. and, and I think really importantly to add to what you're saying is that the way we talk about or think about menstruation changes over time, even within a single culture. So seeing these different theories are different ways of framing or understanding women's bodies and women's roles in the world. Um, and right now we're in the middle of a moment where we're seeing a whole bunch of new products that are encouraging a more body positive view of periods. And so it seems like we're entering into a new moment culturally of thinking about what periods are and what they might mean to us. Totally. There's a bunch of products today which embrace this really body positive image of menstruation. Everything from Dear Kate which is a period underwear company that has a podcast and lots of very body positive events related to periods hmm. to thinks underwear hello flow which has this fantastic viral video on the full moon party oh my god i love the full moon party <laughs> ad i tried everything to get my period nothing so i faked it yeah, I got it. It's so red. Cherry Slush Club! Blood Sisters. They bought it. Hey, Katie. What's this? What do you think it is? I'm on my ladies' days. What do I think it is? Ruby Licious nail polish. But she doesn't need to know that. We have to celebrate. 
No, we don't. Oh, it's family tradition. We're throwing you a first moon party. I mean, that's a company where it's just about, like, sending you monthly period products, right? Right. But the ads are, they're so funny because of the way that they just talk about and celebrate periods and imagine a world in which, like, your whole family would be in on a humongous joke that outs you for pretending that your period started earlier than it did. Just, (laughs) like, adorable and hilarious. The fact that these things are so novel at this point in time is crazy, actually, because so many other parts of our culture, especially... the last 10, 15 years when we have message boards and the internet and chatting and then eventually social media, like people have the ability to connect very candidly about all different things. We can talk about all different things and see all different things, but somehow period stuff is so controversial Mm -hmm. and laden with, I don't know, like disgust or something. Yeah. Disgust for this like really natural thing that happens. Yeah. I mean, actually, did I tell you, (laughs) when I was living in Japan back when I was 18, I remember being like totally blown away. I had a couple of tampon-related I'm blown away experiences. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you share? One of which was when I would buy tampons or any kind of period products at the store, they would first wrap them in brown paper before putting them in the shopping bag with everything else. So just so that in case someone could like see the box pressing against the plastic bag, it wouldn't be clear that I had recently purchased tampons. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay. And the other thing was that I remember talking with a woman who was maybe in her 40s or something. I don't know how tampons came up. I have, I have no answer to this. But I mentioned that I, maybe I needed one or something. And she was so shocked that I was using tampons at 18 And I was completely baffled. I was like, well, yeah, tampons. (laughs) Scandal. We stared at each other in confused silence. And she finally goes, but you're not married. (laughs) And like in a slow, agonizing moment of realization, I was like, oh, my God. Like the kinds of period products that I use are assigned to other people of my sexual activity. Although it's yeah. like, there was actually no relation there. Yeah. The idea that I would be using tampons before marriage was basically like broadcasting to the world that I was not a virgin. That's common. Like, we weren't allowed to use tampons either. But I love tampons. They're my yeah. number one favorite friend. I love them. They're the bomb. As I have told you in the past, if I were to live in another period, I basically couldn't imagine living in an era that didn't have ibuprofen and tampons. Fair. And I love that you got a shame bag for your tampons. I want a shame bag for like Cheetos and other humiliating things I buy at CVS. Like I don't, I wouldn't need them for that kind of product because I'm not ashamed of that. There is some really deeply shameful activity that goes on between me and like the CVS snack aisle. Yeah. Cool ranch nachos bag. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's uh, let's do some takeaways. Yeah. So although there's not scientific agreement on why humans menstruate, um, and we're one of very few animals in the world that do, what is clear is that every age gives it its own meaning, and every culture gives it its own meaning. And that means that it's pretty hard to think about periods as purely biological or physiological things, that they're really embedded in culture in a lot of really important ways. And right now, we seem to be in a moment of moving towards embracing periods and menstruation and certainly about talking about them. A lot of this is through commercial culture, where people are selling different kinds of products related to periods, but a lot of it also isn't. So we seem to be in a kind of exciting new moment for periods. Hooray. And I'm into that. Yay, periods. Questions, comments, ideas? We'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcasts at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more info about us at intheory.us 
or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to all of your friends. That is right. All of them. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by the fantabulous Aaron Taylor Waldman. And introducing Olive Carlhawk, who is now part of the team. Thanks for listening. Eve, you wicked woman, you done put your curse on me. Why didn't you just leave that apple hanging in the tree? You make us hate our husbands, our love.